Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week, we look at how fisheries enforcement, the creation of strong marine protected areas, and ending subsidies provide real solutions to the fact that 90% of the world's fish stocks are now overexploited or depleted. As we discover in this episode, fish is the main source of protein for a quarter of the world's population, and sustainable fisheries are essential to the livelihoods of billions of people in coastal communities. If we stay on our current course, we'll push one of the planet's prime food sources beyond the limit. I meet up with Megan Brosnan, the Marine Program Director of WildAid, a very effective organization founded to reduce global consumption of wildlife products and to increase local support for conservation efforts. Megan started her career as a federal law enforcement officer in the U.S. Coast Guard, operating in the eastern Pacific and Alaska, and ultimately became the deputy chief of the Coast Guard's Living Marine Resources Enforcement Program. She earned her bachelor degree from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy and has a master's in marine affairs. I start by asking Megan how she ended up in the U.S. Coast Guard. Well, I knew I wanted to be a marine scientist. I was born and raised in Connecticut, and the Coast Guard Academy was an hour down the road, has a fantastic marine science program, and promises adventure and travel and, you know, saving people in the oceans. And then the Coast Guard sent me to Alaska, and I was a fisheries enforcement officer, uh, also on a ship based out of Cordova, which is a small fishing community. I loved it, and I knew I liked to eat fish, but I didn't really understand uh, the interplay between the management requirements, how do you make sure there's fish for the future, um, getting to know the people who really depend upon it, and also understanding the Coast Guard's role and you know, making sure that the people that are following the rules to make sure there's fish for future generations. I didn't even know really that the Coast Guard did fisheries enforcement. We are the federal cops on the oceans. So making sure that the fish that are being caught are legal and you can fish during that time using the gear that's required during an open season, you have a permit, et cetera. So when, when you'd be on the boat, let's say in Cordova in Alaska, mm-hmm. what, what kind of does your day look like? Or how does it, is mm-hmm. it on your boat? Are you on someone else's boat? So getting on board a fishing boat in Alaska involves coming from your nice, relatively comfortable 225-foot cutter getting into a tiny 12-foot rib during, you know, swelling seas, having to time the jump to make sure that you get into the boat and not in the water next to the boat, Uh, being transported with your team alongside a fishing boat and reversing that process, um, hopefully in a way that makes you look somewhat professional by the time you get on board the fishing boat and (laughs) let them know that you're going to be inspecting them. For the larger fishing vessels, it could take a half a day for an inspection. From the Coast Guard perspective, there's two missions. It's safety. Are they about to sink? Hopefully not. And then it's also compliance with the ocean conservation laws. And then it's also, are they catching the right 
species of fish that they're supposed to? Are they using equipment they're supposed to? Do they have the logs that they're required to have? Do they have the permits, et cetera? You know, it's all. So how would you know, for instance, like that they're catching the fish that they're supposed to? Mm, Lots and lots of training. So if I, as a Coast Guard boarding officer, go and board a vessel, let's say they weren't using some devices that protect the seabirds from getting entangled in the lines, then I would collect the evidence, put together a case package, and that case package goes to the National Marine Fisheries Service. And they're the ones that pull together the evidence, you know, pursue the case, do any deeper investigation. How do we make sure that the fish populations are managed sustainably? It's going to depend on the species, but in general, there's going to be areas where you can't catch fish because they might be really important nursery grounds or really important pieces of habitat. And that's a pretty cut and dry. If you're, you know, fishing in the area, then it's illegal. So for example, for lobster fisheries, if um, the female is buried, I mean, they have eggs on board. You don't want to catch that lobster. You want those eggs to hatch. So they should never have those on board. There are also just simple limits in catch. You can't If we catch too many fish, there's not going to be enough mom and dads to make enough babies and we're not going to have fish in the future. So there's catch limitations. There is always that concern of you're catching a fish, but at the same time you catch a seabird, a turtle, a sea lion or, you know, something along. You entangle a porpoise. So there's various different ingenious devices that prevent a seabird from snagging a piece of a baited hook or that, you know, make it almost impossible for a turtle to swallow a hook or that scare away a marine mammal from a net. We only can enforce our laws within the 200-mile zone that we control. How does it work? Within 200 miles, the U.S. can establish the laws. There are also fish species who rather annoyingly don't respect borders halibut, right? They travel up and down between the U.S. and Canada all the time. Well, there is an international commission that uh, manages those fish species so that no single country or no single group of people take more fish than can possibly be taken. Outside of 200 miles, they are international treaty organizations where however many countries that feel they have a stake in the fishery come together and agree on the exact same sets of regulations or sets of rules that we've talked about in a collaborative manner to manage on the high seas. I've been to American (laughs) Samoa. Yeah. There is one of the largest tuna canneries in the world. Mm -hmm. And I asked them, like, how much tuna are they canning a day? Mm -hmm. The answer was 400 tons, Mm -hmm. which was like, oh, my God. I I just couldn't believe that the ocean could have 400 tons a day. (laughs) And then you see the ships coming in. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're like jalopies. I mean, it looked like they were barely floating. I talked to some of them. They've been out at sea for months. Yep. Like, how do we know that they're observing any of the rules? If this were a simple problem, right, we wouldn't have already overfished more than a third of our fish throughout the world, right? We wouldn't have declining fish stocks. But it's not a free-for-all. In addition to everyone getting together and say, This is how we divide the fish. This is how much fish can be caught. They also have vessel monitoring requirements where there are vessel transponders that must be on board. There is catch documentation that has to be done that has to follow the fish off of the vessel. In some cases, there might be electronic monitoring, which is like a closed circuit TV watching the the deck for proper activity. The U.S. Coast Guard could board a foreign flagged vessel 
to ensure that they are following the rules. It doesn't change the fact that it is a huge ocean out there and there's not someone watching 24-7. What was it like being a woman inspector in the Coast Guard? Mm -hmm. Was that Mm -hmm. a challenge for you? No. In my experience, a lot of the time when I got on board the fishing vessels, the captains tended to see that it was a woman and not give me nearly as much of a hard time as I saw them give my male colleagues. It's just one of those things where you're you're all wearing the same uniform, bottom line, and it's a team. Did it feel like you were making a difference? So my vast majority of my on-the-water experience was in Alaska. You met the fishermen whose livelihoods depended upon it, and you heard the stories when the fishery was not as well managed and it was a derby and it was not safe and they weren't getting as much money per fish. We occasionally tried to sneak up on folks and, you know, see if we couldn't catch them in the act. And even with all of those steps we were taking, vast majority of the folks that I met either had no violations or if they did have violations, they were reasonably small ones that, while important and we, you know, pursued them, weren't necessarily going to result in the fish stock crashing or in, you know, major losses of fish. Now, that's not true everywhere. There's always those kind of cases. The United States has decided to put this system in place that is thoughtful, that tries to take into account the best available silence. And it's not perfect. It's hard. But you see it moving in the in the right direction. So, like, to me, it was a, a story of hope. I saw the importance of what I was doing out there. And I just wanted to take what I had learned and apply it globally. I wasn't going to be able to do that in the Coast Guard. So, (laughs) I mean, I'm still actually a reservist. Um, So do the one week in a month, two weeks a year thing. Uh, Coast Guard hasn't, couldn't get rid of me fully. So Megan, it sounds like you're pretty hopeful. I don't think you can be in my business and be a pessimist, like bottom line. Like if you're a pessimist, you can find enough reasons to think that all the fish in the world are going to disappear, right? There's plenty of room for improvement. Taiwan has the largest fishing fleet in the Mm -hmm. world Mm -hmm. by far. Mm -hmm. And so they're kind of a semi-unregulated entity. Mm -hmm. And then just imagine all the other fleets out there. Right. um, How are they being regulated? You will see almost no Taiwanese vessels trying to come or foreign flag vessels trying to come into U.S. waters to fish illegally. It doesn't happen because the U.S. has the systems in place generally, to protect their waters and to apply strong consequences if someone is caught illegally fishing in their waters. That is the case globally. If you can work with the countries that are working very hard to protect their own waters, then you can ensure that these foreign-flagged vessels are not coming in and stealing their fish. How much of the Pacific is jurisdictional as opposed Uh. to... I mean, just ballpark it. Between a quarter and a half of the world's oceans are beyond national jurisdiction. So there is a whole lot out there that's termed, you know, deemed the wild, wild west and is only managed by these treaty organizations. Do you eat fish? Um, I do eat fish. How do you pick the fish (laughs) that you eat? It's a combination of do I know the person who caught the fish using tools such as the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Seafood Watch, MSC certifications, aquaculture certifications. I tell folks that the the easiest first step is to either do the MSC certification or to uh, buy American. <laughs> so most of the fish you buy, you know the people who caught it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So that's a good place to be. It is. It is. Yes. Very lucky. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that's the ultimate kind of buy local. You, you, mm -hmm. You're so local, you know who caught it. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. there are some aquaculture fish yeah. that you would eat. Like, like anything, if it's done well, actually aquaculture can even um, be a benefit to the environment. For example, many uh, shellfish aquaculture farms can actually contribute to water quality um, in the local area. I tend to think we're not going to be able to feed the world <laughs> in general if we don't have some aquaculture. It's just not going to be possible. So there's more than 3 billion people worldwide that depend upon it. Uh, and that's greater than 20% of their diet. And in developing countries, that ratio is much, much greater. So what you're looking at is the people who are most at risk are also the people who will feel the greatest impact uh, as fish populations continue to drop. And as fish populations continue to drop, the price goes up. In the most local, smallest scale context, the price goes up, but really for them, the size goes down and the number goes down, right? A fisherman that once could bring in a couple of, you know, one kilo fish and feed the family and sell a couple for the day and within a day now can barely capture enough fish to feed the family for the day. I mean, that's, it's unacceptable. We've talked a lot about enforcement, but the enforcement is based on a regime that looks at what a sustainable yield is, right? And it yeah. seems like we keep getting that science wrong. Today, there's less than half as much fish in the water than there was in 1970. A quarter of all marine mammal and uh, shark and ray species are endangered. Six out of the seven sea turtle species. So, yes, we're in trouble. It's not something that needs to be looked at lightly. The good news story is that within the U.S., there will be more and more fish in the coming years because we're no longer overfishing. We stopped fishing at rates that are unsustainable. And what about the there rest are, of the world, though? Mm-hmm. It's uh, on average, you're still seeing fish populations drop. There are techniques for understanding when you have a little data, so you don't have all the complex scientific systems that the U.S. has at its disposal. There are still ways to meaningfully manage populations, right? And that's, mm -hmm. but that is predicated on knowing how many fish are there. Yes, right? but you, you can do it with data poor systems. So there are systems that can do it totally based off of the size of the fish that are being landed, the volume of eggs within the fish. The evidence has shown you don't necessarily need, you know, multivariable calculus to meaningfully manage a fish stock. That's good news, right? Oh, yeah. Super good news. The local fishermen's local communities usually know where a species might give birth or at the time of year when you might see a lot of juveniles. Well, fish less or don't fish in those areas or during those seasons. How do you create that global change in behavior? Yeah. Half of all fish for human consumption is caught by small-scale fishers. If you look at the total number of fishers, 90% of those are small-scale fishers. So 10% of the fishers are catching 50% of the that's fish. That's right. Okay. Yeah. The small-scale near shore. That's okay. what we're focused on. Yeah. Okay. Tell us a little bit about how communities are organizing themselves to help fish populations get back up and also manage the fishery sustainably. There's any number of examples of communities that come together and choose to close down their fishing for a period of time. Uh, there are communities that choose to give up fishing gear 
once they understand that there is actually an alternative gear that will still give them the catch volume that they need to catch. One of the places that you're focusing a lot of attention is Gabon, which is on the Atlantic coast of Central Africa, right next to the equator. So Gabon, it has some of the largest tracts of virgin, untouched mangrove forests that I have ever seen. Uh, you feel like you're in like some kind of exotic movie when you go out on patrol with the rangers. They take you on their, their patrol boat and they're just going down these narrow, jungle-covered waterways with crocodiles and fish jumping and just palm trees and dense forest. And it's just this like stunning green lush place. And then you have to make sure you slow down because in the more rural areas, the villages still use dugout canoes with a little 40 horse when you're going up, you know, a little motor for when you're going upstream and pulling when you're going downstream. Uh, You don't want to swamp them while you're going along. And they have a semi-industrial fleet there of larger, maybe 30-foot open canoes that they use nets to capture fish with. And I saw carp that were so big that I couldn't put my arms around them and six-foot barracuda. On most of the boats, there were fish that size. So just this vibrant abundance there. Uh, But they're seeing signs like less fish are being caught per day. And the size of the fish, believe it or not, is going down. So you got these early indications that you need to be catching less or you need to be maybe adjusting the seasons where you're catching. So I've got a ranger named Kumba who at one point managed a couple of the industrial tuna vessels. And then he met a couple of personnel who are working on an initiative called Gabon Blue, which is a wildlife conservation society initiative. And he got sucked in. It was, you know, let's preserve these waters for the future of our children. And he respectfully interacts with the fishermen, engaging with the folks in the uh, these small fishing camps, you know, a few small small houses, almost usually a family unit and two or three fishing boats per location. And, you know, slowly but surely working with them to enforce the laws and bring them into compliance. We seized a a motor during one of our patrols because we caught folks who were blatantly breaking the law that they knew about. How does enforcement play at that local level? Yeah. The first is supporting the rangers, the enforcement officers on the ground, highly motivated people, putting their lives on the line, want to see the fish for future generations. There's all sorts of very simple approaches that they can take to make themselves more effective. I have background experience in enforcement and in that kind of work. I have a whole team of folks who are like me that have that type of experience, and we mentor and train. So that's one way. So tell us a little bit about the... So mangroves, for instance. Mm -hmm. So the intersection between, let's say, coastal mangroves, um, which are being cut down at alarming rates, mm-hmm. and the health of the fisheries. Yeah. The mangroves are the, are the nursery grounds of hundreds and thousands of species. There's indications that uh, scalloped hammerhead sharks go to that area to spawn and to grow. There's hundreds and thousands of square kilometers of water that have all these roots interspersed with them and are just extremely safe 
places for fish to grow and thrive. And they need that habitat. Bottom line, the rough Atlantic Ocean coast with beating waves against a rock is not going to be a place where a juvenile fish is going to be able to survive. The vast majority of species need some time in these kind of nursery grounds. So we and need mangroves. We need mangroves. We need coral reefs. And I mean, all the research shows, like, again, and this is another area for hope, is that, yes, the water is getting more acidified, but nature can be extremely strong in response to these things if you give them the space. You need to protect the habitat, and then it can be resilient and figure its own way out in how to best respond to these kind of challenges that we've unfortunately thrown at it. So tell us about marine protected areas. So marine protected areas is a space in the ocean that is protected and conserved. Usually it's because there's a really important habitat or maybe a really important species in that location. So in Gabon, in that context, they actually were global leaders. They declared 30% of their waters as marine protected areas. And they put forward a quite a portfolio. So a couple of the marine protected areas where we're working in are river mouths, where those fish need to get in to the mangroves, right? So they protect those, those river mouths and allow, do not allow fishing in those mouths so that sharks, ray, fish, hell have the chance to get into where they need to and spawn. There are areas that are offshore that are protecting humpback whale rearing habitat or unique deep sea seabed and uh, areas and seamounts areas. So a marine protected area can it can be almost anywhere. The idea is designing it in a way that's thoughtful and then not just putting it on paper. So Gabon has established them and now they are taking steps to meaningfully protect them. Just give us a scan of like how many marine protected areas are there? Mm-hmm. Like are there more each year? Like tell us what's happening with marine protected areas. So there are declarations of over 15,000 marine protected areas wow, that's around a lot. the world. There's a lot. So the goal, there is a uh, conservation of biological diversity goal to reach 10% of our coastal and marine waters to be protected by 2020. We're basically there. Okay, That's There's amazing. A lot of, yeah. I mean, most of these international conventions never get there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're in 2019 and we're nearly yeah. there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um. So there's a lot of really good organizations working hard on it and can't raise up your hands yet, but we're it's going to happen. We're confident it's going to happen. Um, and that's wrap, all around the world, right? all around the world. And yeah. for it to help people wrap their head around it, that's about three and a half United States, lower 48 in terms of area. There is so many additional declarations of intentions for marine protected areas that would bring up us up to five United States worth of water protected around the world. So the problem isn't the declarations. The problem is then, okay, we've got the boundaries. We know that we need to protect this area. How do you now actually put the laws in place? How do you enforce them? How do you bring the community along with you in a way that will meaningfully protect them and have those actual benefits? So what are some of the elements? So every marine protection system needs five elements. And if you don't have one of the elements, it's not protected. So you need to find and catch illegal actors. There needs to be policy and consequences. So laws that actually make illegal fishing illegal and consequences for acting illegally. You need to have 
the community as an equal, if not leading partner in the protection of those resources. And that's not just thinking of like, you know, Joe Schmo coastal community, that's the fishermen, that's the, you know, the folks that are actively involved in the process and their livelihoods depend upon it. Uh, you need to empower the people who are conducting the enforcement or managing the MPAs with training and with mentorship and just an understanding of how to go through that. And you need to do, to do all that on a balanced budget. Now, what that looks like, though, in each location is going to vary. So in some places, you might not need a boat because maybe there's only one safe harbor and all the fishing vessels are coming back to that one harbor. So you can just hop on board there. But in some locations, you're going to need to set up binoculars to monitor your marine protected area. In some place, you're going to want something that's based in, in space, a satellite-based monitoring system, right? And those exist? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so there's, <laughs> there's satellites that are currently protecting marine protected areas. Yes, there's absolutely. a lot of protection there, but yeah. yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. Absolutely. That's cool. Um, it is. It's super cool. Way head up, she rises. Way head up, she rises. Way head up, she rises. Airline in the morning. There's so many, there's more fishing boats than we need, right? When you look globally, it just seems like we've got way too many boats and not enough fish. Right now, our fish populations are crashed. We have way too many fishing vessels targeting it, right? Because of all those inefficiencies, we, are, we have lost $83 billion a year. Wow. Just because of inefficiencies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Inefficiencies and overfishing. So, yeah. So too many boats targeting the same fish. If you had mm -hmm. less boats, even yep. if they caught less fish, you'd make $83 billion more. That's right. Once the fish populations rebounded. Yeah. Exactly. We have this image of Indonesia that probably we wouldn't think, wow, they're going to be leading this charge to get rid of capacity, but yep. they are. Yeah. There's always that question of you catch an illegal, a vessel that's acting illegally, what do you do with it? All right. And often the solution is like, oh, well, we don't, we want to make some extra money off of this so we can keep the lights on. So let's sell it. But that just puts that boat back in circulation. And yeah, Indonesia is making the very bold choice to burn them to the water. And uh, steps like that are absolutely essential. It seems like governments are still giving huge subsidies to keep fishing boats on the water. I mean, there's going to be more boats that are going to be built. As long as the fishing fleets are being subsidized to the level where they are, where they are not paying the actual cost of fuel, where they're not really being expected to pay taxes on the resources that they are targeting. Until you decrease that kind of subsidies, you're going to mm. keep on getting more and more boats out there because there are totally illogical procedures in place that enable them to operate financially sustainably. There's a perverse incentive mm -hmm. to have more and more. Absolutely. So like you get a boat and mm -hmm. someone's going to pay for the fuel. Talking of money, isn't there like a lot of illegal trade going on on the high seas? Did you see that when you were the Coast Guard? And there's transnational organized crime and all sorts of gnarly illegal stuff out there that requires that kind of a very tactical, you know, kind of approach. Even but with fish? Even with fish. Wow. Absolutely. Um, so fish are like up there with drugs and guns and <laughs> absolutely. illegal trafficking. I yeah. had no idea. Yeah. I mean, it's all intermingled. It's all same, you know, if it, if you can make money out of acting illegally, then you're gonna. It's, uh, you know, shark fin, any kind of endangered species. Absolutely. Fishing vessels have huge amount of carrying capacity. You know, why are 
people going to ignore? And for all the reasons we've just talked about, they're really challenging to monitor. Why would they just be used for fish? Why would transnational organized crime people ignore that opportunity? They don't. Putting transnational criminal activity to the side for a moment, what's your view on how enforcement should work? Vast majority of policing, if we want to call it that, should be respectful engagement with the people who you are monitoring. And in fact, if you are disrespectful or if you're combative, if you're not trustworthy, then you're going to have the exact opposite effect. People are just going to flip you the middle finger and figure out how they can avoid you and continue to, to do what they're doing. But if you are respectful with how you are enforcing the laws, then you're going to have, you know, grandmas slapping their sons up the side of the head saying, what, what are you being an idiot for, right? Because you're treating them with respect. And that's always how it should be done. So the idea that there's this enforcement and then there's community engagement and that those two are separate is a very flawed and actually hurtful approach. They have to be fundamentally interlaced in your approach. So give us a kind of view into the next five, 10 years. Our fish population is going to rebound. Are the regimes from marine protected areas to these regional treaties to burning boats to the enforcement in Gabon (laughs) at the local level? Like, How do they all come together to create fish populations that are healthy? There is so much fantastic work going on globally. I absolutely predict we're going to reach the 10% goal. There is now momentum building for 30% of the world's oceans to be protected by 2030. There is also at the same time a global recognition that that question of, okay, it's on paper, how do we make this meaningful? You're not going to see an immediate uptick in fish populations. You're not going to see an immediate recovery of shark populations just because these things take time. But the gaps, the loopholes that people are per, are taking advantage of are rapidly shrinking. And the world continues to take the ocean much more seriously and recognize the value of the ocean and the need to preserve the oceans. And our mission is to end the illegal wildlife trade. And uh, part one location where we got started was the Galapagos Islands. Um, and when we started there, there were tens of thousands of sharks being poached for their fins every year, um, totally unsustainable levels. And we partnered with the park to build their protections to meaningful levels. And now we're seeing the densest shark populations in the world in some areas and rebounding shark populations in others. It's not an easy place to enforce, right? It's not because it was easy. It was because people worked together, used the smart tools, used the smart procedures and are dedicated to continuing to work on the process. Nature is robust. If you get out of their way, if you just like give them a chance to recover, protect the key habitats, don't catch too many of them, they're going to recover, you know, for the vast majority of cases. It's, uh, it's pretty impressive to watch. A big thank you to Megan Brosnan, the Marine Program Director of Wild Aid, for talking with us today. I started our conversation with a lot of fear around the future of fish and ended up being inspired by how much is really being done from satellite monitoring of ships to enforcement collaboratives at the community level to the creation of robust marine protected areas to Indonesia burning illegal fishing boats. Megan reminding me that nature is robust also gives me hope. In the next episode of Podship Earth, 
I get a mani-pedi and discover the host of toxic chemicals from formaldehyde to toluene that nail salon workers and clients like me are being exposed to. I talk with a nail salon owner who is working to make the nail care industry healthy for everyone. This is the 50th episode of Podshipper, so a special thank you to each of you that have been with us since the beginning and to those of you who are joining the Podship Earth journey now. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld, have a great week. <laughs>